Hello, and welcome to Tunneling Journal's podcast series, Our Underground Future, Episode 4. In this standards-themed episode, Professor Dix draws on almost 30 years global legal experience as a disaster investigator, lawyer, and barrister with his candid insights and advice on empowering underground professionals in the proper use of standards and other common practices to manage personal professional legal risks. Today, we're going to discuss standards. We're going to discuss what it is that is accepted internationally, what it is that is accepted country by country that constitutes the way we do things around here. A set of instructions about how to build aspects of that underground infrastructure, which is so important in bringing dignity to humankind. We've already had a discussion about legal obligations, the obligations on you to discharge your professional, your your special skill, what it is about you and your role, what's expected of you in that role in delivering underground infrastructure. We've also had a discussion about risk assessments, the good, the bad and the ugly, as a tool that can be used in discharging our professional obligations. And this time, this time we're going to have a look at standards. Now we link it all together, the professional obligations, the risk assessment tool and standards, our little trinity. Now, in Austria, not Australia, in Austria, A court in Salzburg, after hearing all the evidence and legal argument following the Kaprun ski train blaze that killed 155 tourists, determined that the train conformed to the latest technical standards and all requirements were fulfilled. My friends, for the Austrian case that was instrumental in finding not guilty, against those who were technically entrusted with the welfare of the 155 tourists who perished in that underground railway. So that's kind of nice because it suggests if you follow an appropriate standard, then you're deemed or you can argue that you're deemed to have done your job properly. Isn't that nice? And it's tempting knowing that, to cut and paste bits from different standards so that you get the result you want. It's tempting to standard shop, as we call it, where you go from one jurisdiction to another, from one discipline to another, looking for the bits that suit you. But unfortunately, that's not how you should be rolling in this jurisdiction. In fact, Get up to those sort of tricks and I'm afraid you're looking down the eye of somebody like myself doing an investigation and finding you out. Finding you out because you haven't done your job properly. These standards, these standards are generalisations. They're generalisations related to a particular time in history and their generalizations 
in relation to a place, a location, a context. They're a summary, usually through consensus, about what we do around here, wherever here might be, and a statement of if you do it like that around here, that's considered acceptable. And the court cases around the world, including the Austrian case that I just mentioned, are entirely consistent because they say things like, as was the case in Podmore against Aquatours in uh, 1984, a finding of want of due care can properly be made even though the defendant has obeyed all statutory requirements and followed a common or universal practice. You see, my friends, just following the standards is not enough. You've got to do it in an informed way. And in our business, in the subsurface business, that means bringing your care and attention to the table because what we do is uncommonly difficult. So what are standards? Well, you can go to the dictionary. Things like ordinary procedure or quality or design without added novel features or something serving a basis, an example or principle to which others conform or should conform or by which others are judged. Typically, that's the sense of the English definition at least. So one of the key features are normal, ordinary, not unusual, and that they serve as some sort of a basis, an example, a basis upon which others are judged. And that is the key to it. If, as in the case of the Caprun funicular rail disaster, it can be shown that when compared to the standards, what actually occurred, the judgments that were made, actually lined right up, there was nothing more that could reasonably have been done. That, as we learnt in the second discussion we had, there is no wisdom of hindsight based on the information as it was at the time without the benefit of hindsight, following the standard was okay. So what are these standards? They're more than you might imagine. And they fundamentally underlie virtually every technical thing we do. Let's consider the fundamental standards of time and distance. Time's important. Underground, time is really important, especially in the context of human survival, especially in the context of emergency evacuation, especially in terms of the period of tenability that you have to provide in a subsurface piece of infrastructure in a subsurface space. But time... Time, how we measure time, is just a standard. And, you know, it, it just comes, if you, if you measure how long a day is, literally, how long is a, is a day, divide it by 24, divide that number by 60 for the 60 minutes, and then divide that number for 60 seconds, that's it. That's a second. It's related to how quickly the Earth spins. Why am I telling you this? It'll become obvious in a second. So time is just an arbitrary measure, a way that we calibrate our observations, a way that we turn our 
judgment into something that we all understand, a way that we can communicate with each other, a way we can measure. That's all it is. And if you're in any doubt about that, did you know that every four years or so, there's a leap second because the earth is slowing down and we actually adjust our clocks for that. So time, seconds and minutes, not a magical quantity, a quantity related to the rotation of the earth. And understanding that then leads us to some other interesting observations as well. What about distance? Well, what about, in fact, all the measures we make? Mostly they're based upon what we call base 10 maths. Okay. So why is that important? Well, it's because in our standards, in our generalizations, we tend to do things that are in multiples of 10. Or we do them in variants of seconds, which are related to the rotation of the earth. The rotation of the earth actually defining in a nautical sense what a nautical mile is. So a speed limit of 100 kilometres an hour is around about the same as 60 miles an hour and all of that's related to the units. There's nothing magical about the numbers at all. Why do I care? Well, if we go to a public place and we ask how often per hour should the air in a bathroom, a classroom or a hospital waiting room change, it should be about two changes per hour. And if we go to an alternative standard, it could be 10 litres per square metre of floor area per hour. Why? Well, they're kind of rough approximations. They're in the standards, but they're not linked to very, very precise scientific and engineering observation. Actually, they're related to the units that we choose to measure in. And yet, because we're dealing with base 10 or base 12 or base 60 in relation to distances uh, and time, the units are arbitrarily decided by us and we use approximations. And when we convert from one unit to another, we end up with all sorts of stupid numbers, unless we're careful, in the standards. And it is so tempting for people who don't understand this to begin to worship the numbers in the standards if there's some sort of universal truth, if the numbers themselves have some basis in higher science or higher wisdom, when in fact, when in truth, they're just approximations and no one ever intended them to be calculated right down to the level of accuracy that they often are. And grown men and women fight about them, especially underground. The metre, where did that come from? Well, cut the world in half through the North Pole and Paris and divide by 10,000. See what I'm getting at? The metre the meter's just a arithmetic calculation with 10,000 in because we're good at base 10 and cutting the world in half through Paris because it was done out of France. A foot, that's really important in the underground as well, a foot because a lot of the standards are in feet. Uh, feet out of the UK, feet out of the US, uh, feet to a different extent in other jurisdictions as well. Where did they come? There was a huge fight. Some came from Egypt, 
a French foot is a bit bigger than an English foot. There was a smaller foot coming from the Greeks. There's a Russian unit, the Archine, which is about two Egyptian feet. And there's the Japanese Shakasun, uh, which is a bit, well, it's less than a foot, but it's a unit of measurement similar to a foot. The point is that the units confuse the numbers and the numbers are biased to the system of counting that we use. So when we're looking at standards and we're underground and we're looking at critical issues such as human survivability, tenability, evacuation, times to emergency, egress points, places of safety, the test is the reality, not the unit, not the standard. You recall in the risk assessment, I spoke about the limitations of the risk assessment. You can't use simplistic models such as evacuation speeds to a point of safety. You can't use simplistic models uh, such as time it takes before there's a reaction. You can't use those models unless you state the limitations of them. The same is true for the standards. You've got to understand the limitations. We are building in the subsurface. This is a highly risky environment. Of all the endeavours on earth, this is one that absolutely warrants you thinking, what do we have to do here? What must we do here? Not, what does the standard say? Let's just do that. Remember, remember the discussion that we had about engineering I explained that engineering is heuristic. It's based upon experience. It's usually developed through consensus. It's developed in an industry and practical context. It's not hypothetical. So the standards are an expression of generality. The standards are an expression of consensus. And what there isn't anywhere on the planet right now is a standard for standards. Let me explain. There's no requirement in a standard to consider, let alone disclose, presumptions that the standard is based on, sensitivities around different parameters stated in the standard, the vested interests of people who are on the standard-making body, the local regulatory context, the local manufacturing context, the local customs the local way in which disputes are managed, the local legal system, the local political system. There is nothing disclosed about that in the standard because we, as more technical people, tend to be interested in the numbers and the prescription. And we don't typically take time to consider the context. You try building a Japanese underground railway system outside Japan, according to the Japanese standard, and I promise you won't end up with the same product you have in Tokyo. You take the German ice system and the underground system, take it out of Berlin, take it out of wherever you like, follow the standards and build it somewhere else, you will not have a German system. There's something more going on. There's nothing sinister about this. This gets back to what we discussed very early on in this series, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. If you think you can have what another country has by copying it, 
If you think you can just buy everything off the shelf out of a particular country, the standards, follow it, apply it in your country and end up with the same functioning result, you are kidding yourself. There is so much more to this in a complex, highly complex system for the delivery of subsurface infrastructure and the functionality that goes with it. These issues are fundamental to understand for each of us when we're delivering our noble objective of rolling out subsurface infrastructure and other facilities around the world. So when do we see this? How have I seen it? These biases, limitations, sensitivities and weaknesses usually reveal themselves when the standard is taken out of context, out of its natural environment. For example, time. An old standard being applied to a new project. Classic, see it all the time. Old standard, new project. Or the opposite. On an old project, being forced to comply with the requirements of a new standard. Or commonly, the standard that's being sought to be applied is out of touch with the state of the art. So the timing of the standard at our point in the journey of discovery of what constitutes the state of the art, what's constituting the best practice, the time is important. The subject matter. The subject matter might appear simplistically to deal with something we're doing underground. But from a scientific and engineering perspective, it's wrong. It doesn't matter that it's about concrete. It's not about concrete underground. I'll explain more in a moment. The complex interdependencies, interdependencies between a range of aspects on the project which are not contemplated by the standard. The standard is being wrongly used. It's in the wrong context, typically due to complex interface issues. That's where I mostly see it. Complex interdependencies, difficult interfaces. The standard doesn't work. It's out of its normal habitat. It's being forced into a different habitat and it's causing distortions and perversions in the result. Also, the standard has a whole lot of biases, a whole lot of hidden, hidden presumptions in terms of the geographical, geopolitical, geolegal, geocultural aspects that it brings. A standard from Europe brings with it the prejudices and practices of a European context. It's not a bad thing. It means it's European. A standard that's coming out of the US brings with it the biases, the supply chains, the regulatory environment, etc. of the US. Not a bad thing, but you've got to be cognizant of it. A standard out of Japan, a standard out of China, a standard out of Italy, a standard out of Greece, a standard out of Australia, a standard out of anywhere brings with it elements of the ecosystem, the habitat in which that standard has been developed because it's been grown in that habitat. And even contractual frameworks, which we'll deal with in a separate discussion in the future, but contractual frameworks likewise grow in a context, a legal context, a cultural context, a business around here context. And it is absolutely wrong to think that you can impose even a legal standard, just 
shoehorn a legal standard into a different context, a different country, without tailoring it for the local environment because they are different. Time. Let's just explore time. Typically, our underground projects, delivery of our underground projects is measured in at least decades from concept to operation and typically centuries in duration of operation. That's both the attraction and the challenge when it comes to the application of standards. At the same time, construction technology is accelerating at an enormous rate, both physically and in terms of the special next generation tools for project management like BIM. This means that time is critical. The time of the standard and the time of your project, you need to try and align them and if possibly have a mechanism to better align them during the life of the project. Standards revision cycles are typically three to 10 years and usually result in technical requirements that are about five to 10 years out of date at the time of publication. So you're already behind the curve just on time. The subject matter. Underground infrastructure is deceptively similar to normal above ground works. It's also deceptively similar to mining, but it's different and it's different in fundamental engineering ways. The underground is different in terms of the extreme geotechnical, hydrogeological, structural, geochemical, geothermal, all of those nuances underground make it different. So it's not good enough to use a standard for your say structural components that's the same as you use for a bridge. Why? Because it's a different environment. The generalizations in the bridge standard do not just transfer without translation. Standards that deal with human habitation and occupancy might look like they're similar because they're from a building up at the surface or near the surface, but they're not because of the specialised tenability and evacuation safety dimensions underground, because of the criticality of the fire engineering. And in countries where there is a push to simply apply building codes for fire and life safety, for example, building codes in relation to occupancy underground, it is wrong. You must translate it for this particular environment. And if you're in a project where it's been specified in the contract that you've got to use the local building regulations, you are warned now here in this discussion, you be critical. You make sure you, I mean you, you have an obligation to actually make sure that it's applicable. It's wrong to apply these standards without a translation for the subsurface environment. It's easy, but it's wrong. It's wrong to apply normal occupational health and safety standards because the subsurface poses a special and often rather oblique set of risks that are not apparent. You just don't have hyperbaric issues. You just don't have the same degree of emergency shelter reliance. You just, it's a different place. So even though superficially the standards may look like they apply, please translate them, challenge them for the subsurface. And there are complex interdependencies as well. Evacuation modelling 
needs to take into account the really unusual behaviour of the environment underground and the way people behave differently deep underground. The the thermal behaviour underground in terms of thermal, thermal flux from walls and reflection of radiation, more like an oven often than in a normal building. Electrical cables. Electrical cables are a classic. It's no good taking your electrical cable um, standards and thinking that prescribing the anti-smoke, halogen-free, U-butte, anti-toxic cables from the above, that that's going to deliver the same solution below. Why not? Because of the nuances in the microenvironment underground, typically, typically damp. And if it's damp, there are usually issues because the very, very high performance cables that we use on the surface are often hydroscopic. Again, devil in the detail. Do not just adopt the standard. And for those of you who think that you can apply the mining standards, well, just remember the spaces that we're creating typically last for a hundred, if not hundreds of years. Whereas in a mining context, Typically, they're designed to last for a period of mineral, mineral extraction, not hundreds of years. Each underground environment has its unique geoengineering context and ecosystem. It has its physical characteristics that are pre-existing and some characteristics that are induced by the construction process itself. The standards from country to country are, are based upon the experience in particular geographic regions. The Swiss standards for construction are based on hundreds of years of alpine tunnel construction in active geotechnical conditions. Compare them with the British standards, not as many large Alps in Britain, or the South African standards, which are developed in a mining context. The legal contracting frameworks in some countries are illegal and in other countries are the main practice. As I say, we'll deal with that at a different discussion. The regulatory environments can be vastly different in terms of fire safety, environment protection, health and safety. So in applying a standard, you've got to pinch yourself and ask, is this right here? The Swiss standards will be magnificent in Switzerland. The Japanese standards, wonderful in Tokyo but the translation of those excellent outcomes to other countries involves translation. Example, here's an example, we'll combine all of these factors. I'm just gonna take a common or garden road tunnel in a country with limited history of tunnels. Of course, of course they bring experts from all around the world because that's what we do in our sector. We always bring experts from all around the world. Thank you very much, I enjoy that role. All the experts from around the world, we all come together and we're all very, very clever and we bring our international expertise. And typically the group of lawyers will develop a very aggressive lump sum fixed fee contract and we'll be very, very prescriptive about the mandatory requirements and we'll set out all the standards that you absolutely have to apply, often resembling a Google search of tunnel standards and a few other things thrown in for good measure with a mandatory requirement to do everything. 
usually wrap that up with no opportunity to vary the contractual terms and then we send it out to market and there's a fight to the death by a group of competitors who tender us, tender out, tender in, tender telling us that they're going to do the most magnificent job, although realistically they've never been able to fully assess what we've asked for anyway. This is a real project. So project gets tendered, full responsibility for ground risk on the contractors. Ground is artificially constructed using fill, creating effectively um, new land, landfill. Experts, well, to get make sure it's right, we've got experts from British origin, American, European, Japanese, Chinese. Some of the Europeans also from uh, Germany, Italy, Greece. They're all there. Awesome. How could we get it wrong? Build the tunnel, it leaks. Not good for tunnels when they leak. They're not meant to leak. So, first lesson. The compaction standard for the reclaimed land, so the actual standard applied for the fill, was unsuited to the local conditions. Because the standard that was used, yes, it was for reclaiming land, but it didn't actually properly consider the hypersaline conditions at this particular location. The tunnel segments are compromised because although they followed the standard, the standard didn't adequately consider some of the issues chemically with the local aggregate. And in addition to that, the, although the local uh, conditions were different, obviously, to where the standards originated, the way the segments were constructed didn't address the drying regime for the prefabricated segments in this location. And it means that the segments that actually were created dried too quickly and are too brittle. And the drainage of our leaking tunnel, it doesn't work either because there's a lot of sand in this particular location that blows in from time to time. And the drainage has been designed for somewhere in Europe where they don't have sand. And there's another problem too. A whole lot of the materials used in this particular tunnel are counterfeit because under local practices, there's a sort of unwritten law that non-genuine components can find their way into these projects, even if they're known to be fake. And it's a bit difficult to get accountability because once the project's done, everyone runs away. But the one, the big one, the one that really highlights the point for me, remembering I'm talking real project. And hey Siri, play Peter's classic drum solo, the big one, the traffic control signs for all the vehicles face the wrong direction, the wrong way. The lighting is facing the wrong way. Why? Well, remember, we got all the experts from around the world. We've got British and Americans. We've got Japanese and we've got European. And guess what? The road's been built to American standards, but the lighting and signage is to British. And guess what? Americans drive on the right-hand side of the road and the British, well, they drive on the left. And there was no room to change things under the contract. So no one said anything. And the tunnel was built partly left-hand side, partly right-hand side. Come on. 
That's what I'm talking about. This is what I'm asking. Stand up and be counted. Building this infrastructure requires you to consider and actually be seen to consider. And if necessary, put your hand up and say something. This standard isn't appropriate, even if the contract says we've got to apply it. In that in that particular instance, yes, the lighting standard was British. Yes, the signage standard was British. And yes, it's been done strictly in accordance to the standard. Just unfortunately, we're not in a left side of the road driving country. We're in a right side of the road driving country. Oops. The other thing that can happen is technical things can get out of date. Again, a real instance. In the United States, NFPA 130, the standard for underground fixed guidance way systems or metros, as you might call them in other parts of the world, is very strict on the cables to be used for emergency system. And the reason for that is that in an unlikely fire or other degraded event, you want to make sure that your emergency systems, your key emergency systems are maintained, especially things like emergency lighting and emergency ventilation, so that people can find their way to a place of comparative safety. And the US has got a long history of putting its mission critical cables inside galvanised pipes because it works and it works in the US. But there was a time very recently where a series of fires rendered the emergency systems not functioning. And a subsequent investigation, when opening the galvanised pipes, discovered that the cables were missing. They were gone. That is, something had happened inside the galvanised pipe during the fire emergency and the copper was gone. So an investigation occurred and it was determined that everything was done in accordance with the standard and some very good research was done. And here's the point, the difference between a standard, the generalisation, the heuristic, this is how we do it round here because this is how we get it done and actual scientific investigation. It wasn't that the cable was of poor quality it wasn't that the galvanised pipe had some flaw in it. It was that the standard for what's known as an assembly in this critical life safety system underground requires the assembly, that is the galvanised pipe on the outside, the protection, and the copper pipe on the inside to be tested under simulated fire conditions, in extreme conditions tested, in both the vertical and the horizontal. And that had happened and everything was fine. But the scientists discovered that where that pipe was not perfectly vertical or perfectly horizontal, the zinc in the galvanised metal pipe became mobilised and the liquid and the copper in the cable its melting point reduced because it made brass. Because it made brass. So the science conspired in this unusual and outside the standards configuration of neither vertical nor horizontal 
to not only compromise the emergency electrical system, but to render it useless, even though it followed all the standard. My point is simple. Knowing that if you're involved in a project where that standard is being applied, you should know about that problem with the emergency system system cabling requirements under the standard. You should challenge the use of that particular type of system with the galvanised pipe and the copper to make sure that what's installed actually works and isn't just in accordance with the standard because the standard was demonstrably wrong, even though it's in the standard, even though it's called for in contracts. So as we spoke about in the Austrian case earlier, it's true that it's a defence, usually a defence to say, and in this case, the judge said, the train conformed to the latest technical standards and all requirements were fulfilled. And on that basis, everyone was found not guilty of improper conduct. But, 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 in the case of the emergency system cabling, you should know better You should be aware, if this is part of your profession, if that's what you do, that following the standards isn't good enough. Other examples are numerous for the underground. Take, for example, congested single-directional urban road tunnels. There's different requirements under the EU directive in Germany, in Switzerland and Japan. But does that mean any one of them are unsafe? Of course not. But they're different. That's the point. It's the legitimate differences between approaches, the legitimate different approaches to building underground structures and infrastructure safely that informs us about how we do our job properly as professionals. Compliance with the standards might provide an excellent explanation for a design, might even provide an excellent way to explain what we've done, but it's not a substitute for sound engineering. And as you'll recall from our previous discussions, as has been said in numerous cases, and in this case from Mercer's case, very early one last century, the mere fact that a defendant follows common practice does not necessarily show that he is not negligent. Though the general practice of prudent men is an important evidentiary fact. A common practice may be shown by evidence by itself to be negligent. That would be the case with the electrical systems in the US if you weren't aware of this problem with the galvanised pipes and the emergency cabling. So I'll give you another example. Underground, it's really, really important that if something goes wrong, you can get to a place of safety. I'm going to talk about cross passages. Under the American NFPA, cross passages on rail are 244 metres, or roughly 800 feet. In the EU Directive, 2008, 57EC and Regulation 1303-2014, cross passages are 500 metres. So does that mean a EU, EU underground is less safe than an NFPA one because the distance is almost twice? 
What about in roads? Do we see a similar thing in roads? Well, we do. In roads, the distances between those cross passages are in the UK, 100 metres. In Australia, 120 metres. Under NFPA 502, 300 metres. This is getting back to distance. 300 metres is 1,000 feet. See, 1,000 feet translated 300 metres. It's a round number. Germany, 300 metres, 1,000 feet. France, 400 metres, a bit more than the Germans, a lot more than the English. PIARC, PIARC, which is the Association of Road Authorities around the world, they take an each-way bet, 100 metres to 500 metres. That's what they say. China, 250 metres to 500 metres. Come on. Are we saying that one of those countries has got it right and all the rest of them have got it wrong? Of course not. They're all different standards. And in different contexts, they're right. But we've got to understand what that context is. In NFPA 130 for underground railways, it's similar. Cross passages aren't even required in tunnels where the distance between evacuation shafts is less than 762 metres. 762 metres? Where did that number come from? Well, that's 2,500 feet. Gets back to what we first discussed. Distance. It's not a magical thing. It's actually generalisation. It's not 762 metres as opposed to 761 or 763. What it's saying is around 2,500 feet. These generalisations are generalisations. We have to be engineers and understand them. And when we try and understand where these generalisations come from, mostly no one can remember. Some say, for example, in relation to the US, perhaps the rail distances relate to 600 foot long trains in the early days of the US. Maybe 120 metres for road tunnels has got something to do with fire hose lengths or maybe segment lengths in, in um, immersed tube tunnels. Really? Perhaps? We can't quite remember? We can't remember because, you know, it doesn't really matter that much so long as we understand why it's there and we understand the performance that we're seeking to achieve. That's what we do as experts. And the temptation, and please don't do this, and I've seen it far too many times, the temptation is to reverse engineer your risk analysis, to reverse engineer your selection of standards to give you the answer that you want, that special number, whether it's for time and temperature or smoke or travel times or whatever. Don't do it. Remember, we've got a job to be done. We're building, we're building spaces underground that have to last for hundreds of years. Let's just do our job properly. Predicting the future is difficult. Building our projects in such a difficult underground environment also has its challenges. But shopping for standards, trying to find the standards that suit your particular argument, suit your particular set of constraints, is not cool. Cutting one bit out of one standard because it's more convenient than another is very dangerous. Going to use standards, understand their strengths and limitations. Don't be bashful, technically. If they're wrong, they're wrong and it's your duty to raise it as an issue. Don't go standard shopping. More standards doesn't mean better project. 
selecting different bits from different standards doesn't make a different project. Standards are useful generalizations, and they're sometimes even deemed good enough from a risk point of view. Sometimes even people calculate numerically what the resultant risk is if you were to apply an accepted standard and use it as a form of risk assessment benchmarking. But that doesn't make it right. It makes it acceptable. However you use them, always remember your professionalism and training. They are not and should not be seen and should not be used as a substitute for your expert judgment. Standards are a way to demonstrate you've performed your role honourably, you've discharged your legal duties, but they're not a substitute for doing your job. You can boldly play your part in building our shared underground future. You can boldly deliver this vision of a dignified future for humankind with the marvellous subsurface projects from water and sewerage and transportation and power and farming and you can you can play your part in that and to do it to empower you to give you the strength to give you the boldness to give you the confidence understand your overarching professional obligations embrace your calling be emboldened but use the tools the tools of risk assessment the tools of standards, these means of discharging your duties honourably and you will be more confident and more effective. That was internationally acclaimed underground expert, Professor Arnold Dix, lawyer, scientist and engineer. Having now explored the importance of the legal framework, negligence, risk assessments, common practices and standards for delivering our underground future, Tunneling Journal's next podcast with Professor Arnold Dix will examine the strengths and weaknesses of a range of contractual tools in empowering underground professionals to better deliver, maintain, operate and refurbish the assets of our underground future. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Tunneling Journal.